The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Barron's Live Market Watch Edition. I'm Katherine Huggins, a politics reporter here at Market Watch. Joining me today is Ben Colton, Director of Research at Beacon Policy Advisors. Hi, Ben. Thanks so much for being here and welcome to Barron's Live. Thanks, Catherine. Yeah, since today is election day, let's get started by talking a little bit about what's motivating Americans to go to the polls. Obviously, polling shows inflation and the economy are top of mind for most voters, but is that everything? Yeah, so simply put, Americans want things to be and feel normal. It was the driving force behind the 2020 elections for Joe Biden and and Democrats, a return to normalcy. I'd say you can call the 2022 midterms a battle of abnormalities. So what abnormalities are going against Democrats? Uh, The big thing is the economy. There's 40-year inflation high, including the highest real gas prices in over a dozen years. There's a 70-year low level in, in consumer confidence, and there's a decline in real disposable income. So it's no wonder why a majority of Americans think the country is in a recession, despite there still being a robust jobs market. And then although the pandemic has kind of become more, a little more normalized, there's still a lot of lingering malaise over the non-health consequences. So crime remains elevated, drug overdoses are continuing at crisis level, uh, math and reading scores for students has plummeted. Uh, and then there's just the perennial issue of immigration that Democrats really don't have an answer to. And the U.S.-Mexico border crossings uh, this year have reached an all-time high. Uh, so that's for Democrats. I guess the question is what abnormalities are going against Republicans? Uh, there's the conservative Supreme Court uh, overturned almost 50 years of precedent of, of Roe v. Wade early this year. And then several Republican-led states uh, severely restricted or outlawed uh, abortions. And then the 2020 presidential election loser, Donald Trump, remains front and center uh, for the Republican Party. And Trump's obsession over loyalty in the 2020 election being rigged has only elevated uh, questionable recruitment of Republican candidates. So there's all these abnormalities, but which one matters more? I think what we're seeing from polling and a lot of anecdotal evidence is that it's the economy and crime that matters more than abortion and democracy. And it's not not to understate those latter two issues. Uh, It's just that inflation is pervasive. Everyone experiences it every day, and they see it at the gas station, they see it at the grocery store. Uh, more voters turn into local news and cable news, and local news shows crime day in, day in and day out, whereas kind of access to abortion and, and democracy are just more ephemeral to the average voter. Uh, and that's why I think the issue environment this year benefits Republicans. Um, and so what are some of the key Senate races where you can particularly see those issues taking hold, such as inflation? Sure thing. So I I think when you try to ask, like, who controls the Senate and where are these issues really mattering, uh, you look at at three states. You look at Georgia, you look at Nevada, you look at Pennsylvania. Uh, Nevada in particular, it's a race that is about as generic as you get from the candidates candidates in this day and age. So there's Democrat incumbent Senator Catherine Cortez Masto, and she's facing against former Republican State Attorney General Adam Luxaltz. Both aren't superstars, but neither carry major baggage. Uh, and Nevada is a state uh, 
with uh, historical democratic roots with a major union and Latino presence. But those are two demographics that have uh, kind of seen a rightward shift as of late. And you're seeing out West, there's kind of a, a larger level of, of inflation and kind of the service industry more impacted by the inflation in, in this economy. Uh, at the same time, Cortez Masso is trying to really lean into to the issue of abortion and, and that the kind of abortion is at stake in, 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 in this 2022 midterms, even though uh, the state of Nevada ha has legalized uh, abortion. So you're kind of seeing two generic candidates with two generic messages from both sides, uh, one economic issue, one more social issue. Uh, and, and it's kind of seen that the, the, the silver state is seen as very much a toss up, but Republicans do feel pretty confident that the, the macro environment and kind of the, the underlying trends of kind of the working class voters and Latino voters care more about the economy than they do about necessarily a democracy and abortion, uh, giving them giving them a, a slight advantage. And so you're seeing that kind of out West a lot in, in the Arizona Senate race, uh, but you're also seeing that kind of uh, in, in in coastal races out in um, in, in, in New York, uh, out in California, um, and as well as kind of places like uh, Virginia, North Carolina, Florida, um, and and in the industrial Midwest as well. Um, and now Republicans are very heavily favored to win the House. Um, as of this morning, 538 gives them 16 in, or Democrats 16 in 100 odds of losing the House and Democrats 41 in 100 odds of losing the Senate. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, your view on whether Republicans are going to take back one or both chambers? Sure. I, I'd agree with that conventional wisdom, perhaps even more bullish on Republican, Republican chances for both chambers. My motto uh, for this midterm election has been Democrats can't win, but Republicans can lose. So what do I mean by that? If you look at the fundamentals, you look at history, you look at kind of structural election components, they all benefit the GOP. Fundamentals, President Biden has the second lowest approval rating since the, the 1970s. The Democrats have the second lowest congressional approval rating since the 1970s. And then there's the lowest, Americans have the lowest satisfaction with the direction of the country, and they have the most negative outlook on the most important issue, the economy, since the 1970s. And so that's the fundamentals. You look at history, midterms are almost always a referendum on the party in power, and Americans almost always look to provide a check uh, on that power. So going back to midterms since World War II, the president's party has lost uh, House seats about 90% of the time, with the average number of seats lost, uh, 26. And then with the Senate, the president's party has lost uh, Senate seats uh, about 70% of the time, with the average number of seats being lost approximately four. And so this year, Republicans only needed net five House seats and one Senate seat to regain control of Congress. And then finally, structurally, Democrats have a more inefficient political coalition. So a lot of their a lot of their their voters are kind of clustered in blue states and, and blue districts where Republicans are more spread out. So the median House district is Michigan's eighth congressional district, and that is that that congressional district is 2.4 points to the right of the national average. And then when you look at competitive Senate races like Arizona, Georgia, Nevada, Pennsylvania, these are all states that are also to the right of the national average by about one to four points. So all else being equal, Democrats need to win the popular vote by 2.4 points or to maintain the House and one to four points to maintain the Senate. Now, with all that being said, it's clear Republicans are underperforming those advantages. So that comes from their own candidates and brand problems. In many of these kind of competitive Senate races, Republicans weren't able to get top tier recruits and Trump's involvement played a key role. And just as a, as a reminder, Trump is, is very pervasive in the Republican Party, but he also 
underperforms the Republican brand. So kind of Trumpian candidates are also, it's unsurprising that they're, they're also uh, kind of underperforming where you think Republicans would do. So the question is, are we well, that in? yeah. What I mean, races are you seeing that sort of Trump-endorsed candidate underperform? So you're seeing that in, in almost all, all the key races um, You're, you're in, in the Senate. You're seeing that in, in Georgia, where Herschel Walker was early on endorsed by Republic, uh, by, by Donald Trump, and and he was kind of uh, begrudgingly accepted by by the establishment. But a lot of a lot of news cycles about his some of his personal personal controversies um, and this is his qualifications. Uh, and then you're seeing in, in Pennsylvania, uh, you, you see, again, uh, Trump putting his support towards uh, uh, someone who's never run for office before, Mehmet Oz, uh, or Dr. Oz. Um, and he has kind of been a lot of kind of cycles, uh, new cycles, not about Democrats and inflation and crime, but about controversies surrounding Oz, whether kind of his kind of par carpet bagging status of being someone who's from New Jersey um, and some of his kind of questionable uh, medical recommendations. And then you see in Arizona, uh, again, the, the the governor of Arizona, uh, Doug Ducey, was kind of bullied into not running by Donald Trump. And in his place is is more of a far-right uh, candidate, uh, Blake Masters, uh, who, who kind of represents a, a little more of a kind of a, a authoritarian uh, bent in, in the Republican Party. And he, again, he has never been a candidate before. And so there has been more news cycles around, instead of inflation and crime, about kind of his his comments about uh, abortion, about democracy, um, and and just a whole host of other things. And so when you're when the race is a, it's supposed to be a referendum on the party in power, and instead it's a refer it's more of a choice election between kind of a candidate that has higher unfavorable ratings in the Republican Party. It makes it makes the job of Republicans harder to take advantage of this pro midterm year. Now that being said, I think Republicans can underperform, but still win the House and the Senate, given that the fundamentals, history, and structural advantages are still very much uh, in their favor. It's just that uh, a lot of these candidates are making it much more harder to kind of take advantage of that of that baseline. Mm -hmm. And then given that it does appear we're headed toward a divided government, can you speak a little as to the market implications of that and what investors could expect in a divided government? Sure. So, so markets, they... they, they they will have, a, I think they'll have a positive reaction to the news of a divided government, more so than Democrats standing in control. I think the saying goes, Wall Street loves gridlock. And I guess uh, Elon Musk heard that too when he tweeted uh, out support for Republicans as a way to curb the excesses of the Democratic Party. The theory goes that de divided government means less legislation can pass, creating less policy risks and, and thus less volatility for markets. Uh, there's been some, some studies that have showed that the, the year after midterms of divided government is, is a, a good return to the market. Uh, in, in practice, there is no real difference from market returns when there's unified versus divided government. I guess it depends on the timeline you're using. Uh, since 1928, the annual S&P 500 return for both governing uh, scenarios are about approximately 7%. I'd say today markets, they're less focused on the machinations of Congress and the White House, and they're more focused on what's going to happen at the Federal Reserve. So monetary policy, uh, is is really uh, kind of the the headline out of D.C. And the markets are probably looking to see if fiscal policy will help or impede on the Fed's job of beating the back of inflation. So to that end, I think there's some concern that if Democrats retain and expand their majorities, there will be more fiscal spending, thereby causing the Fed to raise rates even further to tame inflation. 
I think those odds are overstated. I think Democrats reached their their high water policy mark in the in the last two years. They don't really have the political capital, even if they control uh, both chambers of Congress, to continue that build back better agenda. Uh, but there's also kind of reasons to think gridlock won't be as good for markets as initial reaction hopes. There's a lot more questions than answers in how Republican leader Kevin McCarthy will manage his new Republican majority in the House. And so there's going to be big tests in items like raising the debt limit and keeping the government from shutting down that could lead to legislative brinksmanship that could cause volatility and make the life more difficult for the Fed. Um, so I guess kind of the takeaway is the monetary policy is still kind of the the, the main the main goal for, for markets, what they're looking at in, in D.C. after the midterm elections, but how how uh, kind of the, the federal the, the federal government responds with fiscal policy could could impact for better or for worse uh, the Federal Reserve's response uh, into fighting inflation. And then continuing um, on this issue of you know gridlock in a divided government, if Republicans were to retake control of either or both chambers, what sort of legislation would they be trying to pass, and what sort of legislation could actually make it? and be signed by the president in this divided government scenario. Sure. So I think the secret of parts in Washington, D.C. is that most major legislation that passes each year is done on a bipartisan basis. Things get done in divided government. It may not generate headlines, but it can impact the bottom line. Uh, so there's must-pass legislation. So next year, that's annual appropriations, defense authorization. There's a five-year farm bill uh, authorization. There's a five-year FAA reauthorization. So big things are going to, going to come on agriculture, welfare, uh, aviation, defense, and general spending. Um, and beyond the kind of the top line spending levels, there's there's plenty of policy writers that could hitch a ride on, on major legislation. And there's pl plenty of under the radar political uh, legislation or non-political legislation or issues that don't simply divide along traditional lines of Republican versus Democrat. So both parties are becoming increasingly hawkish towards China. So expect there to be continuing uh, uh, partnership with the administration on export controls, things like uh, curbs to outbound investments to China. Uh, crypto policy is another area that's going to continue to be developed as legislation gets more airtime, especially in relation to kind of stable coins. Permitting reform uh, has an interest from both parties as a way to help speed up domestic energy production. Data privacy legislation has a bipartisan alliance that will continue to push for action in the next Congress. And of course, there's there's always tax policy. Beyond the major partisan changes in, in rates, tax lobbying creates bipartisan alliances for certain industries. So especially if there's going to be an economic slowdown looming, expect businesses and, and trade associations to try to get Congress to act on some relief for housing, research and development, and, and gig economy workers. So I think this is a, a, an area that there's still plenty of meaningful bipartisan legislation to get done. Now, if you're talking about Republicans and kind of what is their, their legislative agenda, I, I think Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell their number one overarching priority is to keep their party aligned with, with eyes towards gaining a, a GOP governing trifecta after the 2024 uh, midterm elections. So the, the 118th Congress is not where they will reap their legislative legacy. Uh, that being said, kind of seats will be planted and legislative priorities today become enacted bills in 2025. Mm -hmm. So you can take uh, cues from the GOP uh, come come next year through, if they have both the, the House and the Senate to do reconciliation legislation to pass some tax policy, to use the Congressional Review Act to kind of revoke some, some Biden regulations like uh, a, a, an, an incoming uh, SEC rule on climate disclosure. Um, and you can see kind of from the, the investigations and, and, and hearings that there's gonna be a push against ESG investing, 
and kind of the so-called woke corporation. And that these are things that aren't going to necessarily pass into law or going to become mainstay this year, but it will be kind of a prelude to a potential trifecta of, of Republican control of, of government in DC come 2025, if Republicans win the presidency. Um, at this point, I'd love to remind our audience that if you have any questions, to please use the Q&A feature, um, and Ben would be happy to answer. I actually have a follow-up question from a viewer about Ukraine and what foreign policy and support could look like toward Ukraine um, with the midterms. Sure. So there was there was there is a certain contingency, American first contingency in the Republican Party that we need to focus on uh, America's border to the south with Mexico rather than the borders of, of Ukraine as a concern to Russia. And this is this is a, a I'd say a minority view, but it's it's certainly a, a vocal view of kind of some some MAGA Republicans. And you, you saw Kevin McCarthy kind of hinting that you know he he is not necessarily going to give a blank check to 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 Ukrainian aid. Um, that being said, I, I don't I don't want to um, underestimate the resolve that that uh, the administration. And even Republicans in Congress have to, to to fighting and giving support to Ukraine. Um, while 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 Mitch McConnell didn't make any comments about uh, Kevin McCarthy's saying that he's going to try to leverage the debt ceiling, he was very vocal in saying that uh, that Ukraine will have the support of of, of America. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're seeing some pushback again from even even uh, fellow Republicans in the House that U- Ukrainian aid will will still be there. Uh, I, I think that there's going to have to be uh, it's not going to necessarily be able to be attached with a, a $40 billion here or there without some sort of accountability. But uh, President Biden, you know, he wants to make the case that lowercase d democracy works at home and abroad. And he's trying to build an international coalition to fight back Ukraine, as well as fighting uh, against kind of the increasing influence of China. And so this is a major, uh, a, a major priority for, for him. And uh, still kind of the, the traditional Republican pro-national defense views uh, is still very much pervasive in, in the party. And so I, I expect that there is some common ground for, for Biden to be a little more open in kind of the transparency of, of aid. And, and, but at the same time, for Republicans to continue to, to, to support the efforts uh, of, of Ukraine. And then is our foreign policy issues such as, you know, Ukraine or China or be it elsewhere, influencing at all voter tendencies today? Um, yeah, I, I don't think foreign policy is ever kind of the the, the, the top issue of, of, of an American voter. I, I think it, it plays a peripheral view or it can kind of influence the, the, the overall ethos of what they view of administration. So one of the big reasons that Biden's approval rating last year started to kind of go down was the was the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Um, it was seen less as whether that was a good policy or a bad policy, but more on the level of competence of, of the Biden administration and, and Biden himself. And so you're going to see Republicans uh, look to kind of investigate that and hold hearings into kind of the, the Afghanistan withdrawal. But in, in terms of, of, of foreign policy, I, I don't think it's necessarily a, a driving force for how uh, Americans vote. And so there is a little more power within kind of the traditional establishment DC foreign policy framework that is a little more interventionalist uh, to kind of push the envelope on, on Ukraine, to push the envelope on, on, on China and not necessarily necessarily expect 
um, of a voter backlash at home, especially if there's these America first tendencies. So certainly foreign policy um, is, is something that is in the mind of voters, but I, I don't think it's a necessarily a driving force and necessarily having a major impact on how kind of the policymakers in Congress and, and the White House uh, uh, address things moving forward. Got it. Um, and then jumping forward a bit, um, but looking at 2024 and what the results of this election could have on 2024, you know, if Republicans take back control of either or both chambers, A, what is that going to mean for President Joe Biden's agenda? And what will that mean for his uh, favorability going forward? I guess after a, a president's party loses in the midterms, there's usually some self-reflection, a so-called pivot. Uh, that happened when Presidents Clinton and Obama suffered losses in their first midterms. Not so much the case for Trump. Um, next year marks a half century since Biden first came to D.C. as a U.S. senator. He's been around the block enough to know how to adapt. And despite turning 80 years old uh, later this month and not necessarily an inspirational figure among the Democratic base, uh, I expect Biden to run for re-election, especially if Trump runs again, which he's uh, strongly hinting at he will do um, and make an announcement uh, next week. So what does that mean for for, for Biden uh, and his his how, how does he adapt uh, in the next two years for, for 2024? I think Biden will do the, both a, a pivot, um, but he will also keep parts of his, his agenda on course. So that transformational legislation, uh, legislative agenda from the past two years, the, the infrastructure, Inflation Reduction Act, the CHIPS Act, um, his, there's nothing new in the pipeline. They're more concerned about implementing that agenda well. So his administration uh, will be trying to kind of get regulations out, implementing regulations out to kind of host ribbon cutting ceremonies. And it's just a legacy Biden wants to run on to show that he can get things done like infrastructure that Trump could not. Um, at the same time, Biden needs to meet kind of where voter concerns are today and he may be open, that means he may be open to calls for some fiscal constraints, um, as he was previously a deficit hawk in a, in a past life. So that could mean cuts to non-defense discretionary spending, uh, a little more focus on kind of border wall prote or the, the protection at the border, uh, some things that may upset the progressive base. But Biden has the, his administration to try to ameliorate concerns from, from, from that progressive base. So that means empowering his progressive regulators already in place to push the envelope in the respective areas to, to show that Biden, a Biden administration is not feckless in, in front of kind of a uh, maybe intransient uh, Republican Congress. So you're going to look at Gary Gensler at the SEC, Rohit Chopra at the CFPB, Lena Khan at the FTC, Michael Regan at the EPA, all have an ambitious regulatory agenda that they will continue to push forward that will impact a, a, a lot of industries. Um, and then, as we were saying, Biden, he wants to show that lowercase d democracy works at home and abroad. So he's leaving the country this week uh, to, the middle, to the Middle East and Asia. And so he wants to keep that international coalition together uh, with Ukraine. And he wants to build an international coalition to counteract China. He doesn't want to be outflanked by Republicans at home as being seen as weak on China, which is something that they are sure to, to, to try to hit him with and, and, and Trump as well, if, 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 if and when he, he runs for re-election. Uh, and so I think that's kind of the, the, the outlook of how Biden, who I still expect to run for, for, for re-election, and, and Trump, who I expect to kind of run for, for election for another time, that's kind of the positioning that, that you'll see from, from the White House coming into 2024. Awesome. Um, and now we have quite a few questions from the audience, so I'd 
love I'd love to you know take as many as these as we possibly can. Um, so starting off, if Republicans take the House and Senate, are they likely to put more limits and restrictions on Medicare and Social Security? Yeah. So this is one of the the big questions that that uh, we, we, they've been wrestling with uh, before uh, they they come come into power. So there's there's a strain of of kind of traditional Republicans who are fiscal conservatives, uh, and they say you know the biggest the biggest threat uh, to America, to our national security is the debt. And the biggest driver of, of, of debt is not discretionary spending, it's entitlements, it's social security, it's Medicare. Um, and that we need to address that now, especially when there's Biden is in office um, to do that. So kind of there's, the, can share the blame of who, who is, who's changing entitlements. So that's one strain of the Republican party, but there's another strain of the Republican party you can see as as Donald Trump. Donald Trump's one of his successes in, in, in 2016, when he was running for office and being president, was uh, he didn't ascribe to the view that uh, Republicans should cut entitlement spending. He was the self-described king of debt, and he knew that you know these these two entitlement programs are very popular with voters. And and so as much as Donald Trump wants to to fight, uh, have Republicans fight on the on the debt limit. He doesn't want them to, to kind of force changes to to entitlement reform, and you're seeing several several Republicans uh, echoing that that sentiment. Uh, there's jo Senator Josh Hawley, uh, a very kind of MAGA Republican uh, from from Missouri, uh, explicitly said that it would be a bad idea to to try to have entitlement spending uh, reforms uh, next Congress. Uh, and even even Kevin McCarthy, the the Republican leader, and has said that. Uh, Republicans will not touch uh, the entitlement programs. And then you even saw uh, Senator uh, Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, who previously has been very much in favor of entitlement reform, um, kind of shoot down any any talks of that during during the the election. So I, I think there is there is uh, dividing forces or kind of uh, forces that are in, in conflict with each other among the the Republican Party. But I. I to be honest, I don't see um, them fighting very hard for entitlement reform. Now, what we could see is something like a, a punch to like a, a blue ribbon or a bipartisan commission on, on entitlements, which is a way just kind of to push the the the, the effort to aside. And so you may see something like that, but don't expect to be to see big fights over entitlements uh, next year. Mm -hmm. um, and then another question from the audience is: If Republicans gain control of either or both houses. What impact could there be on changes to drilling in the U.S. and pipeline policy, as well as no more um, depleting the oil reserve? Yes. So this is one of their top priorities. Uh, you see this in commitment to America, uh, to have uh, energy security in, in America. Uh, and, you know, they, they, they have found a lot of kind of political uh, tailwinds in attacking uh, Biden for kind of canceling the uh, pipelines and for for making comments, there was recent comments. They said there's gonna be no more oil drilling um, in, in the country, and so you're gonna expect this to be a, a top priority. Where trying to force Obama to to restart drill or sorry to force Biden to restart drilling uh, to to try to uh, create uh, deregulations to kind of defang uh, NEPA in terms of kind of ways that are kind of preventing uh, the completion and building of pipelines and other. Uh, energy efforts, um, and then to really fight against the ESG movement. That's uh, to fight against uh, coming SEC rules on on 
on climate disclosure for, for ESG on this whole whole of government approach of involving kind of the financial regulators with with uh, kind of taking taking risk of, of, of climate change. Um, so this is something that's going to be a, a, a lot of interest for Republicans. Now, none of this will, will pass on, on their own. Um, and, and there is some there is some room for for compromise. So permitting reform is something that Democrats are interested in as as a means to increase uh, clean energy uh, construction. Uh, Republicans have always loved permitting reform. Now we, we see kind of Joe Manchin trying to lead the effort with Democrats and the bill that Joe Manchin uh, released this year is, is far different than the bill that uh, his fellow West Virginia, uh, Shelley Moore Capital released. Um, but there, there may be room for some compromise. And after a kind of a, a midterm election with, with oil prices and kind of energy prices being high, there may be uh, room from Biden to kind of give some more moderate Democrats space to kind of negotiate some permitting reform. And it, it, I, I don't think you will see more about kind of the, the release of kind of the spur release of kind of oil reserves. This was very much uh, trying to influence uh, gas gas prices in the run up to the to the midterms. But now that the midterms are over, I don't think there is this necessarily this need for 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 Biden to show that he's doing something. I think there is some some room for some nego legislative negotiations here uh, for for things like permitting reform. So uh, I don't think uh, any any more gimmicks will be kind of top of mind, um, but uh, certainly it will be a, a big issue uh, come come next year from Republic Republicans and, and, and maybe even some Democrats. Um, and then we have another policy oriented question from Kevin, uh, which is you talked about bipartisanship in dealing with China. What specific initiatives do you think? a Republican-controlled Congress can get enacted to counter China's um, espionage efforts in America. Um, and I'd love to hear, you know, more broadly what sort of um, policies or bipartisan policies could be enacted in terms of China. So one of uh, Kevin McCarthy, if he if he has already kind of announced that if Republicans take back the, the House, he will establish a select committee on China. So that just raises the issue of China and kind of China policy to the forefront, specifically kind of the origins of COVID, how it started, but also intellectual property uh, theft and, and, and questions about that. Um, at the same time, uh, we're seeing a, a big shift towards industrial policy that's embraced by the left and the right. So we saw the Chips and Science Act passed uh, earlier this year. That was a big infusion of, of funds for, for semiconductors. Uh, we're, we're seeing kind of the administration uh, going further than ever before on export controls of kind of high tech items to to China. Um, and there's been a, a real legislative push for uh, an outbound investment limit, uh, kind of kind of the, the corollary to CFIUS of kind of inbound investments, uh, having national security re review, having an outbound investment national security review. And we're kind of also seeing the Biden administration uh, having having some 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 interest there as well with a potential executive action, so I think there's a there's a broad uh, a broad interest in being uh, hawkish on China and, and kind of in this day and age where there's kind of more inward looking of less about free trade and more about kind of industrial policy from from Washington D.C. Uh, that China is is uh, is rife for political capital from, from both Republicans and Democrats. And so looking into these things like COVID, looking into these things on like intellectual property and kind of 
trying to put a, a heavy hand on how a kind of investments flow in and out of of, of China with, with an influence of, of the United States. I think these are all areas that uh, have, have real potential as kind of this relationship between uh, China and the United States only gets uh, a little more antagonistic over, over the next couple of years. Um, and then I know we touched on 2024, but we have another question from how just sort of, I, I know you talked about Trump's um, prospects and thinking that he will probably run again. Um, but do you think this is from how that Democrats concerns about democracy are overstated this election? Uh, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's hard to put, like, it's hard to quantify the risk to democracy. Um, that, you know, if, 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 uh, election is not uh, done fairly and freely, it, it's, it, it certainly has a, a lot of implications, but like how big of that risk it, it, it is hard to uh to quantify whether it's kind of kind of more the boy who cried wolf from from, from democrats um i think this year as i was mentioning uh there there is concern about democracy although it's there's almost equal concern from from republicans as there are from democrats um i think there's just like a, a deep distrust from from both sides from the other party that they that you know if the other side wins it's kind of the end of democracy as we know it um but this election cycle Trump wasn't wasn't the main show. Um, he has been as much as you know. He still remains relevant in the news. He is not uh, what's on voters' minds day in and day out. It's it's the economy, um, it's inflation, it's crime, and I guess you can argue that uh, inflation getting out of control is just as much a threat to democracy as as any of these these calls that the election was 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 rigged um, in 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 twenty twenty, but. This is 2022. Tomorrow, or a week from 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 today, when Trump announces, Trump doesn't become uh, a bit player in in the news cycle. He becomes a, a, a central focus. It's going to be less about a referendum on the party in power and more about a choice election. Um, and and by the way, if you're looking for a, a surprise um, in kind of the coming coming weeks or, or months, uh, there's a very good chance that Trump gets indicted by by Attorney General Merrick Garland. A DOJ protocol says that you don't kind of make investigative decisions before an election, but after the election, there are some some there's a real case here about uh, kind of his his holding of classified documents um, at Mar-a-Lago, and there are questions about kind of election interference in in Georgia and in in in, in, in other states um, that there could be a real uh, real potential for an indictment or at least a, uh, the appointment of a special prosecutor, which again. The the elect the implications will it's, it will just be that this is again uh, twenty twenty four will be the Trump show and it will only exasperate kind of these concerns about uh, lowercase d democracy. So I think that's it's an issue that um, again will be competing with the economy. Uh, if there there hasn't been a, uh, an incumbent since William McKinley in nineteen hundred to win re-election when there was a recession in the last two years of his first term. So that's going to be a real challenge for for Biden, uh, but. Uh, the, the issues of Trump um, and and potential indictment of Trump and and, and that kind of investigation uh, will will really I think will be much louder than kind of the current calls by by Democrats today that democracy is is on the line in the midterm elections. And I would point out as well that Trump um, has hinted that he is planning to launch his 2024 presidential bid next week, but. 
this is all the time we have for today. So thank you so much for being here, Ben, and answering our questions. Uh, for our audience, please join tomorrow as Barron's Ideas Editor, Matt Peterson, analyzes the election's outcome, its consequences for investors and the economy, and what to expect as the attention continues to turn to the 2024 presidential race. Thank you all for listening. Stay healthy and have a wonderful rest of your day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.